We are on. Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to see you all. Uh, I think I know most of you in this room. Most of you know me, but for those of you that don't know me, uh, my name's Derek Bruns. I used to uh, work here at Timberwood Church and went off to seminary for a few years, and now I'm back for uh, kind of question mark. I'm waiting to move to Australia, actually. I'm supposed to move this week, in fact. Uh, but that has obviously been delayed, and uh, they, they're st their border is still closed due to COVID stuff. So I get to be here with you tonight and consider the Trinity, which is a, which is a privilege. And uh, yeah, filling in for Eric while he is away and preparing to preach on Sunday. So yeah. Well, let's pray together, and then we'll jump in. Father in heaven, we come before you tonight, Lord, and we bow before the mystery that you are, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ, Lord, and we thank you for that, that you have sent your Son, that you have sent your Spirit, that you have adopted us to be your children, Lord. I pray that tonight would be a true exercise in faith-seeking understanding, in which we come to adore the mystery that you are evermore, that we learn how to think well of you and how to live well in front of you. So, Lord, may you uh, grant that prayer tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Eric mentioned last week, tonight we're going to wrap up some stuff uh, that we were discussing on the sun, and we're going to then shift our attention in the latter half of our time together to consider the relationship between the Son, and the Spirit. Um, we've obviously traversed quite a long ways thus far, talking about God's oneness, the Father, uh, getting into the Son. Is there any just questions I could answer at least off the bat, or I should say try to answer off the bat uh, before we hop into our material tonight? Anything from anybody? Okay. Well, I want to start... Uh, before we get into it, by uh, reading something from a, a theologian by the name of Francis Turretin that I think we'll all appreciate. I came across this in preparing this week, and Francis Turretin says this, in the Christian religion, there are two questions above all others which are the most difficult. The first concerns the unity of the three persons in the one essence, the Trinity. <laughs> the other concerns the union of the two natures in the one person of Christ. So, basically, what we did last week and what we've been doing and what we're going to do tonight uh, is some of the most difficult stuff in Christian doctrine, really, ever. So, I know I've wrestled and struggled with this for a long time, and if, if you're feeling that same way, then welcome to 2,000 years of Christian history. And I think that that is a, a good thing for all of us because it, it shows us that we're really kind of wrestling with the mystery of God here and trying to lean into uh, who he is. So uh, we need patience and diligence and prayer, and uh, yeah, that'll get us through this tonight. So again, I, uh, we're going to kind of, as we finish up the stuff on, on the sun and move to the spirit, we're going to do kind of two main things uh, tonight. Uh, the first thing we're going to do is consider three interpretive principles for reading scripture well that are laid down by uh, the kind of seminal theologian Augustine and his work on the Trinity. I've, I've kind of summarized those principles in a handout. If uh, Again, you can grab that uh, in the back. And we're going to walk through kind of each of these principles. And why are we doing this? Well, we're doing this, one, so that we can kind of uh, further explore some of the issues that were, that were confronted last week with the Son, um, but also, as we kind of walk through these, these principles, we're going to have a better understanding for how we distinguish between the Son and the Spirit. Because when we consider uh, the, Son and the, the relationship between the Son and the Spirit uh, on earth, we have to really know, like, what, how do we know that the Son and the Spirit are two distinct persons? What's the, the basis for that? So after kind of going through these three principles, then we'll actually turn and consider the Spirit's work on the humanity of Christ, and then what we can glean from that for our own lives. So, sound, sound like a plan? Okay, great. Well, the first principle that you see on your sheet, for lack of better terms, uh, I'm not very 
creative with terms and summarizing some of this stuff, but it's the, the form of God and the form of man principle. Now, when we as we consider this rule in particular, we're, gonna, we're really picking up on a discussion that was started last week, uh, talking about the relationship between Christ's humanity and Christ's divinity. How, how should we understand the humanity and divinity of Christ in the incarnation itself? Um, you'll recall that uh, there's a ton of discussion and debate about this point, specifically around what does it mean for Christ to empty himself? Uh, you know, I think there was some discussion. Some people like to think of this as Christ laid aside certain divine attributes, like knowledge, omniscience, and uh, omnipresence, uh, when he came to earth in order to be fully human. Uh, those who kind of hold that position typically appeal to uh, Philippians 2, specifically verses 6 and 7, uh, that were discussed last week. Um, again, picking up on this notion that Paul, or that, that Paul says Jesus emptied himself. Now, I want to begin actually by looking at that text tonight. So if you would open your Bibles to Philippians 2, that'd be great, because I think that following Augustine and this rule, that he, or this principle, whatever we want to call it, that he lays down, um, and if we, if we do that and we follow Paul's logic in the text closely, uh, I don't think we need to conclude that Christ emptied himself of some sort of divinity when he came to earth, and I don't think that we actually should. Uh, so let's, let's consider kind of what, what he says here. So we're just going to start in verse 6 for time's sake. So Paul says, who, that's Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So, okay, let's unfold kind of the logic of this passage and see what's going on. So Paul, right away, he asserts that Jesus is in the form of God, meaning he, Jesus fully possesses the divine nature, he is God, and he acts in a way uh, that is God-like. And this comes as, he's, as, as Paul kind of makes a concession here, right? He said, well, even though this is true of Jesus, and therefore he didn't actually have to become incarnate because he's, he's God and he's free, Jesus nevertheless emptied himself uh, because he didn't think that uh, his, his divinity was not something that, was, that he was grasping after, to be exploited. That might be a better uh, translation. But he, he nevertheless emptied himself. But before we kind of make this conclusion that somehow some of the divinity of Jesus is laid aside, we have to consider uh, the next two phrases in this text where Paul explains what it means for Christ to empty himself. So how does Jesus empty himself? Paul says, by taking the form of a servant. And what does it mean to take the form of a servant? Paul explains that in the next phrase. That is, being born in the likeness of men. So, in other words, Paul's saying the way in which Jesus empties himself is by adding humanity to himself. He's not saying Jesus has to become less divine to be human. He's saying that the God who reigns over all uh, becomes less than himself not by getting rid of what he has, but by taking that which on that which he has made. Uh, he, he doesn't, again, he doesn't become less than himself by ceasing to be God, but by becoming one of us. And therefore, in the incarnation, Jesus is possessing the fullness of the divine nature still, which is what Paul says in Colossians 1.19, right? In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So Jesus, then he's simultaneously possessing all of the divine nature and all of a human nature at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. 
yes, can we tailor that question? Because we're actually going to get to some of that when we get to this, uh, at the end, when we get to the Spirit. Because uh, I think servant and slave in this context are trans, like, it, it, they're either, either one is an acceptable translation into English from the Greek term. Um, but yeah, there's this, there's this notion of, yeah, Christ is coming as a servant to live unto God or a slave to live unto God. And that's exemplary for us. So yes, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to that. Um, is there anything else real quick? Well, yeah. Colossians 1.19. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, he assumed humanity to him, yes. So, the next thing I was just going to check, yeah, so, well, two things. One, um, Paul there, when we're talking about God, we don't think of it in exactly the same way as we think about how terms apply to humans. And so, instead of thinking of our own kind of idea of emptying, we see how Paul kind of, the, the logic I tried to go through in saying he emptied himself in the way in which he did that was taking the servant. It's, it's a kind of a metaphorical use in that God becomes less than, so to speak, by not just remaining as God. And actually, I think, let's go, let's, let's go look at uh, Philippians 2, 17. So just a few verses later. Because we tend to think, I think, I think actually Paul wants, with, with uh, the imagery he has here, wants us to understand the emptying this way. We tend to think of emptying, right, as like we have this cup of water and we dump it out and then the cup is empty. But notice how, how Paul talks about uh, being poured out like a drink offering in verse 17. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. So there's this sense in which, what does Paul say it means to be poured out like a drink offering? Paul's identifying with the liquid, not the cup, right? What's being poured out is the fullness of the liquid for the offering. It's not, so we, instead of associating this emptying with, with an empty cup as if something left it, Paul's saying, here's the example of Christ. I'm then following that by pouring my whole self out on this offering, which then we should understand Christ bringing the fullness of his divinity on humanity such that he becomes the sacrificial offering for our faith and for our salvation. Because to save us, we need one who is fully God and fully man. Does that kind of imagery help a little bit and kind of how Paul's trying to explain it? It gets tricky, right? Because it's not, this, this is rarefied territory. So, Really good question. Does that, does that kind of make sense, that, that imagery there that Paul's, Paul's getting at in, in, in uh, verse 17? We, we're kind of starting off, getting right into it, picking up from last week. I know it's uh, heady stuff, but I'm ha definitely happy to stop and answer more while this is what these classes are for, so this is great. We tracking? Okay, great. So, um, where do we want to go now? Let's see. I guess w one of the reasons we have to preserve or we think about how this, even though we can't understand precisely how, let's say, Jesus has the fullness of divinity and humanity at the same time, we we nevertheless know that it, 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 it can make sense in the sense that we, in Jesus, we see both God and creation, right? So we tend to think of this, you know, this emptying as if like Jesus has to be less than God in order to become human. But one of the issues with thinking about that is it puts, Jesus, it puts God uh, into the finite sort of created realm. 
We get so for example for for example, uh, you know, if I were to become gunner, I would have to become less of me because I'm finite. Whenever I ha- whenever I take on something else, I'm necess- I'm giving up something of myself literally. But God is infinite. <laughs> and so we can't we can't think of him in exactly that way. He doesn't uh you know it's not it's not as if like when I do something it's only me and if God does something it's only God. No, God can work through me and in me and through you and through us. And that's what we're kind of seeing here in the relationship with Jesus uh divinity and his humanity. They don't mix together, which actually collapses both, right? If they mix together, then he's neither fully God nor fully human. They remain distinct. Now, at first glance, right, again, this, this is beyond our capacity, but we, we have to maintain this because Scripture, and this is where the principle comes in, forces us to consider Jesus in both his full divinity and his full humanity. So, scripture, it's, it's, scripture is teaching us about this truth, and then we have to find a way to make sense of what Scripture is saying. And so, when we, when we see things like, you know, the Son of God knows all things, and the Son of God doesn't know when the Father, when it's going to come back, what do we do with that? If we're, if we're proceeding, I think, as we should, as people of faith who do not think the scriptures contradict each other, seeking understanding. Well, when we think about that in light of the fact that the Messiah is often prophesied as the one who is going to come and yet who is God, the Messiah is the God-man, and therefore we have to read in a way that helps us recognize that. And so, uh, Augustine, who's kind of come up with these rules, he, he, he kind of summarizes it rather well. He said, it's not without reason that Scripture says that the Son is equal to the Father and that the Father is greater than the Son. Because Scripture does say both. That's kind of where the, the Arian heresies came from that Eric talked about a few weeks ago. So, then Augustine says, well, in order to reconcile these, the statement that the Son is equal to the Father must be understood in virtue of him having the form of God, form of God, whereas the Son being less than the Father must be understood with relationship to his form of man rule, which, drawing on Philippians 2, 7, right, the form of a servant is the emptying of himself when Jesus comes and takes our humanity. And so, we, when we see that the Son is less than the Father, we're not saying the Son is less than the Father in his divinity, even on earth, because he has the fullness of divinity. He's less than the Father in the form of man. So, we, let's illustrate this principle. I'm going to go through the absolutely hardest text right now to deal with that, and then there'll be easier ones, because that's what we're going to do tonight. We split into groups. There are, there are passages that I want us to, you guys to walk through and consider, does this refer to Jesus being in the form of God or the form of man? And then we'll come back and discuss it. But uh, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15, 27. Again, I'm, I'm being selective for, for time and we can't walk through all the details of this, but we'll kind of see how this works. And again, just while we're turning there, I want to remind us, this is not, and we can talk more about this later in Q&A, this is not taking some rule and applying it to Scripture. This is looking at Scripture's statements, drawing back from what Scripture is telling us, and trying to conform ourselves and to read Scripture in a way that respects all that Scripture says. So at first glance, sometimes when we see principles and rules, we think, we're forcing something on the text, and I'm suggesting we're actually uh, gleaning the rule from the text itself. But we can come back to that. Is everybody 
at 1 Corinthians 15, 27. So, okay, so... Paul says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, quoting Psalm 8. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, and here's one of the issues, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Okay, so let's think about this together. We've got form of God, form of man. That's an acceptable way of reading the text because Jesus is both fully God and fully man. So, verse 27, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Well, Jesus is God, is he not? Saying God here, there's no particular... Father, Son, or Spirit, it's the whole Godhead in view. And Eric's done a great job showing us that when we just talk about God generally, though it can refer to the Father, in, in a general sense, God is Father, Son, Spirit. So God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So God is Father, Son, and Spirit. So the Son in the form of God subjects all things under his feet. It's plain that he... Uh, uh, is accepted, who put all things in subjection under him. Okay, then we get to 28. And b- by the way, just on your own time, cross-reference here for verse 27 would be Philippians 3.20, where it, Paul specifically says that the Son has power to put things in subjection under him. So again, that's actually, it's making sense of two different texts. So that's the form of God. Then we get to verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So is this text teaching that the Son is somehow less than the Father? That would be Arianism, which is a heresy. And and Eric, two weeks ago, laid laid it on thick that there is no subordination in the Trinity, to which I have a hearty amen. And other passages in Scripture talk about Jesus creating all things, so why, how could he be subjected to all things if he created all things? So, what the tradition, the Christian tradition, and we're following Augustine here, suggested, and I don't think it's gymnastics around the text, again, we can come back to this later, is that The Son was subjected as a man in the Incarnation. In this whole context of the Son delivering the kingdom to the Father is an extension of the the work of Christ throughout his life. So when we see a text like this where it's saying the Son is subjected or less than the Father, we can say, yes, at a face value reading, that is true. But how is it true? It is true in that the Son is less than God as a man. Yet in verse 27, he subjects all things to himself as God. That's one of the harder ones. So I think, is there questions on that? Yeah. Uh, yes. And I would say that it was a choice taken together with the Father and the Son. Because before the incarnation, right, Jesus, which is Father, Son, Spirit, they all have the same will. Because there's one, there's one nature in God, right? So the Father, Son, and the Spirit have the same will. And that's what we even see a little bit tonight and what we could spell out for a long time is that the reason why our our salvation is a Trinitarian act. We are saved into the Trinity precisely because it was the will of the Father, Son, and the Spirit to send the Son for our salvation, to send the Spirit for our sanctification. 
And so the son, yes, he willingly came of himself, but in willingly coming of himself, he comes as one from the Father, one empowered by the Spirit. And we'll get to some of that tonight if we have time. <laughs> Does that kind of get at your question? Like, Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, 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 it's good, it's good, it's good. Um, yeah, I'm not as in the form of a man. Right, but that's what that this rule helps us make sense of. He prayed to himself also, if he's praying to God. Prays to himself as a, in the form of man, to himself as the form of God. But that's a kind of a... But yes, to the Father we seek man. Yeah, right. I don't feel like I answered your your question. I'm I'm just trying to grasp it a little bit, huh? No, no, no. This, no, it's a great it's a it's a great question. I think I I think I see what you're after. I'm not I'm not quite sure exactly how to um, address it at this point, though. So, well, if you think if you think of it later. Let us all know. We can all benefit from it. Yeah. Okay. Well, he says that, you know, and if we go back to our Philippians text, he, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped or exploited. So that seems to imply kind of the idea of choice. This is like... This is what we'll get back to a little bit too when we get to the sending of the Son and the Spirit. Those are free acts because our salvation, if it is to be sal salvation at all, it's a free act of God. It's not that he doesn't have a choice to come. Is that... You just don't, you don't like the language of choice? Can we do group? Oh, we got another one. Let's, um, she was talking about how there was choice in Christ's ministry. Um, but even just to kind of bring that back to what we're going to consider here, I think that's a different concern because the choice in Christ's ministry is his choice as a man. I think, we were, I think we were talking about choice as God, but let's, we've got enough to think about right now. <laughs> I'm going to cut it off. <laughs> We can come back to questions, but groups of three to five, is it clear kind of what I'm hoping to do? So the text in this section only refer to the first principle. Don't worry about the other ones right now. Just focus on the first one. Just go through the text with your group, re read it, read maybe around some of the verses for context. Say, does this text seem to refer to the form of God or the form of man and why? Make sense? All right, 10 to 15 minutes. We'll be back then. And then we'll just come, note questions, whatever, and we'll, we'll talk about it. Okay, I'm just going to call us back for time's sake, only because we're going to do the next 
I'm, I'm just going to go through this next principle quickly, and then it's the same sort of exercise that we're going to break off into, so you can pick up where you left off right now. So we don't have to leave this discussion right now. Just I'm realizing the next principle is a bit more abstract and relates to this, <laughs> and uh, it'll be, we can just kind of move through this to get on to some other stuff. So note where you're at, and then we'll dive in, and don't worry, this will be over soon enough. You guys are, <laughs> hey, it's heady stuff, but you know, I mean, all, all joking aside, and we can come back to this later, this is, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult because of the subject matter, right? I mean, we're seeking to walk in faith into the mystery that is God, and Scripture presents us with these things, and God invites us to consider them. And, yeah, so we're not just, you know, making things abstract or whatever for the heck of it. Uh, we're trying to, what we're really trying to do is re recognize how we can say that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are three distinct persons who have one, who are united in one being, equal in will and power uh, and in love. And that's the God in whom we have faith. And what we're doing in this, in this class and now is um, helping us make sense of how that's, that's true. So you guys are, I can, I, it, it's good to, yeah, it's just good to remember that going through this. But you guys have been troopers so far. So I'm not cutting you off from where you're at, but let's go to the next one. Any just kind of questions that have come up as you've went through some of the texts that deserve some clarification before we kind of run through this next one quickly. I'm like five, ten minutes on this next thing, and then you can get back to it. Yeah. So he, that, um, what were you saying with, especially with respect to his humanity there? Let me, let me try to understand. This is First John 5.20. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So just for the sake of, there are tons of issues there. Hopefully some of them will make more sense when we're done tonight um, and next week. But just, just considering form of God or form of man, if we just have that question, which one would you say it is? Yep. And later he says he's the true God. So it's both. But in that but that's what I'm saying like that's that's what we're after. But you can make sense of that when you reckon well, yeah, that that face value and that's that's true and I can uphold that because Christ is fully God and fully man. And I understand it this text in, in this way with two different lenses, so to speak. Lenses that Scripture is kind of telling me to adopt. Does that, does that make sense? No, I think that's, that's great. That's, that's what we're going for. Anything else? Anybody have some disagreements over which one refers to what? <laughs> okay. All right, well, we'll move on to the next one. I'm going to be quick here. We can talk 
more about this after. I'll hang around if people are interested or, uh, you know, question time. But we're going to be somewhat quick on this. Okay, so we're this next rule, talking about the unity of Christ's person. Okay, we're talking about because Christ, even though he's fully God and fully man, he is one person. He is the eternal son of God. The, the eternal son of God is who came and took on flesh. He doesn't add another person. He adds a human nature. So in order to kind of make sense of this and see what we're doing, we have to make a distinction here between person and nature, which is kind of a fundamental thing in Trinitarian theology. So in just kind of broad strokes here, a nature, right, is something that tells us what a certain thing is, and it tells us about uh, the ways in which that thing uh, um, acts when it's acted upon, so to speak. So nature's, nature's referred to quality. So, for example, when we say God is love, and he, he does things that are loving, we're talking about the divine nature when we talk about love there, right? Because it's a, it's a quality. Make sense? Or, okay, so when we talk about a person, in contrast to nature, a person uh, is the, the subject of that nature or the one who acts through that nature. So a person has certain qualities by virtue of having a particular nature. And so persons act in a certain way depending upon the nature that they have. So God acts, you know, the, 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 the Father, Son, and Spirit do loving acts because they have a loving nature. Now, we have to be really... Uh, careful here because uh, we, need, we need to recognize this. This is what's very important for us tonight. It is persons that act, not natures. That, that might seem obscure at first, but why, why is this important? Because when we talk about, and this even kind of gets to some of your, your question here, when we talk about God acting, and God acts as Father, Son, and Spirit, it's the three persons acting through the one nature, which is why God does the same thing. The Trinity's acts are bound up together. But what we, we need to know for, for when we're talking about uh, the person of Christ here, which uh, it's kind of inverted, right? So just to back up a step, like the Trinity has three persons, three actors in one nature, whereas Christ is one person with two natures. So what that means then, because persons act, right, is that the Son of God, he acts through a divine nature and through a human nature. We with, we with me? But it's the Son of God who is acting as God and as man. I know we're, this is a bit abstract, but our questions on that? Are we, yeah? No. Not for, yeah, no. Everybody hear that? So in persons, we're thinking, you know, what something is. No, nature's what something is, right? The quality. Persons, who, or who is doing that, or who something is, however you, you put it. Does that make sense? So when we say, this will get us, when we're talking about the unity of Christ's person now, I'm already, I'm, I'm going over my five-minute time limit. <laughs> no. The unity of Christ's person, right? The one who acts, the eternal Son of God. Who is it that is acting? So when we say, uh, you know, let, what, what's an example? Um, you know, Christ was hungry. We, what, what do we mean by that? The eternal Son of God was hungry as a man. It's not that, you know, because he's the one who's acting. 
the Son of God. So, to go one step further, are we, are we, are we tracking? Okay, so what this means then is because persons act, that means we can, when we're talking about the person of Christ, we can say things about the person of Christ, or we, we can say, like, we, we, we can, about the, per, sorry, about the person of Christ, we can say human things about the person of Christ and understand it with respect to divinity, kind of what I mean by improper is it's, it's sort of metaphorical, but not really. I'll, I have an example here we can get to. And, and the same thing, we can say divine things about the person of Christ that apply to his humanity. So, for example, we could say, uh, the Son of Man created the world. And likewise, we could say, the Son of God was hungry. Those are actions, creating, it's an action, which is what persons do. What we're not saying is, uh, you know, God is a creature. Yeah. not quite that simple as a yes or no. <laughs> That's actually a massive debate. And well, <laughs> yeah, well, we will if we, if we, uh, well, that, that gets into how does, how do we understand the spirit in the life of Christ? Well, ho- hopefully, hopefully tonight or Eric might be mad if I don't get to it. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm just kidding. So just to step back, okay, we're talking about the unity of Christ's person, right? So we can say, uh, when we say, you know, like Jesus as a man created the world, we're not meaning, strictly speaking, a man created the world. We're saying that person who acts created the world, because that's true. The eternal Son of God created the world. And in the same way, with on the divine side, and what we're trying to maintain in that is to talk is, is really just talking about uh, that it is in fact the Son of God that came to earth. So just for one example, like that's going to come out of the text, and I'm taking one from your sheet. I think it's uh, Corinthians two eight or something, maybe, where it says the Lord of Glory was crucified. That would be an example of what we're talking about here. It's not saying that the divine nature was crucified or died because the divine nature can't die. It's talking about, no, nevertheless, this eternal son of God himself was crucified, but he was as a man. But it's his person that underwent the suffering as he was acting through that nature. Am I making sense? I am. Uh, with some qualification, but yes, yes, you could say, I mean, the eternal, yeah. Um, no, that's a, uh, um, well, part of this in Jesus' humanity is he has a human soul, too. Um, so, no, we're talking, yeah, just, but on, uh, saying the, you know, that, that, well, that, what you're saying is really synonymous to the example given there, where, like, the Lord of glory was crucified. Or, you know, the, you know, uh, Jesus dies and the centurion says, you know, this was the Son of God. Im- by implication, the Son of God that died. But the Son of God died as a man, which is true because he is the person that was 
acting and suffering through a nature that was disposed to suffering. Even as Hebrews says, at the same time as he's on the cross, he's upholding all things by the word of his power. That's a mystery. But you can see how it's not a contradiction. We can say both those things while not understanding, but nevertheless not contradicting ourselves. Make sense? Okay, go back to your groups and keep going through it. Sorry, we took a little more time than I wanted there. Does everybody have a printout of the, sh of the questions? Okay, I don't think it matters, Lee. I think everybody's got the thing. So, oh, you're talking about for the online, though. Um, I'd go to the next one, because just so you guys know, in the second set of questions when you get there, it incorporates stuff from the first and second principle, because, you know, the second principle is there's not one side or the other. So, all right. Can we come back together? So as we're wrapping up the discussion, just two things to say, uh, good thing to clarify, is that all these rules, and we'll get to the third one here, uh, they're, they're right. It's not that one of them is right and the other ones are wrong. I'm trying to be clear. I would not trick you that, that way. <laughs> so hopefully... It's the rules or the principles, if we want to call them that. They're all right, and they're all different ways that help us make sense of what we encounter in Scripture. And one of just, as an aside, an overarching goal of, yes, this, these rules will help us consider the distinction between the Son and the Spirit, whatever, but one of the main reasons I wanted to bring this here is so hopefully we can all, you know, walk away from tonight better equipped to read Scripture and make sense of some of these things. That's, that's the goal, is so we, can, we, don't just, we don't walk away with knowing some stuff, but actually can implement it into our own Bible reading. So just a real practical way to do that would be, uh, you know, take, save the rule sheet, and hopefully it makes, or principle sheet, hopefully it makes somewhat some sense, and read through the Gospel of John in July. Just one chapter a day, go slowly, and consider, you know, the two rules we just went and the one we're going to get to. <laughs> uh, because I think it will open up a lot, especially in the Gospel of John. So that would just be a real practical way to implement it. So the, the goal, yeah, with this is to walk away being better equipped to read Scripture in a way that preserves the Christian confession. Um, and I know we can all, I know we can all do that. So, um, Anything I can clarify now, or I'm going to launch into the next section and we can kind of talk more at the end. We are, I am like 45 minutes behind where I, it's <laughs> bad, 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 uh, that's, that's rookie planning for one of these classes right here. So I apologize. We, I'm already going to, Eric will have to pick up on the discussion of the, um, the, spirit in <clears throat> the humanity of Christ, because I think understanding this fromness rule will be a good way to round out what we're doing here, but I think it will also really help think about what's happening in the incarnation a bit more. So I'm kind of deciding to go there next. But before I jump in, and is there anything from the discussion that's worth kind of bringing to the floor right now? had some good interactions on the side and stuff, so that's been great. Okay. Awesome. You guys have done some <coughs> heavy, heavy lifting tonight, for sure. So, okay, we're going to get into this third principle. So they're called rules in, in the book, but I thought, like, I don't know, I thought rules sounded too kind of whatever. So I keep saying rules even though I wrote down principles, but you get, you get what I'm saying. So, okay, we're now going to, uh, we're starting to move in the direction of being more explicit on the Son and the Spirit, uh, though Eric will have to pick up on that uh, next week. But like I kind of suggested already, in order to make sense of this, we need to yet introduce another category 
in Trinitarian doctrine, and that is the discussion of divine missions and divine processions. Divine missions and divine processions. So a mission, a divine mission refers us to ascending of a divine person. Mission, you know, we think of like going out on a mission, whatever, but like mission is, a, is actually the, a Latin word, the Latin word for sending. So we're talking about a divine person being sent into the world in a certain way, being manifest to us. So when we're talking about Christ's incarnation, you know, his life, death, like we're, we're really, what we're talking about really is his mission. When we talk about the spirit appearing, you know, as a dove uh, at Jesus' baptism, or in tongues of fire, we're talking about the Spirit's mission. He's sent into the world and made known to us uh, <clears throat> in a particular way. So uh, this, you know, another step further, we won't get into this much, but like when the Spirit indwells us, that's part of the Spirit's mission too. So we have visible missions where, you know, the Son is incarnate and the invisible missions, the Spirit and Son indwell us. But just as a broad category, missions are ways in which we come to see the divine persons are experienced them in creation because they've been sent into the world and made known to us. Now, the, probably the most important reason of why divine missions are important is that we wouldn't, we wouldn't know the Trinity without the divine missions. You know, <clears throat> Eric's reference throughout the doctrine of the Trinity is a doctrine beyond our human reason. It's not something we just intuitively, oh, you know, know. No, it's a doctrine of revelation. It's something that God has to show us both by uh, acting in the world through the divine persons and by uh, in Scripture. We, we're not going to uh, come and know, that the, know of the Trinity without the mission. So ultimately, we know that God is Father, Son, and Spirit because the Son and the Spirit have been sent. So, but the purpose is kind of... <clears throat> For our discussion here, we gotta we have to focus a little bit more on what the divine missions, <coughs> excuse me, tell us about the divine, <coughs> tell us about the divine persons. Um, and in order to kind of get at what the missions are telling us about the persons, the way we do that is pay attention to who is sending whom. And what that tells us about the difference of the person. So we're going to walk, <clears throat> this might be a kind of newer concept, so we're going to do more kind of turning and reading texts in this section. So uh, why don't you open to John 12, verse 44. <clears throat> we're going to start with talking about the mission of the Son here. So that's John chapter 12, <clears throat> verse 44. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. John writes, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. So we're already thinking, okay, who's sending him? We don't totally know yet. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Same thing, questions in our mind. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Parallel with John three, seventeen, The Son was sent, not to condemn the world, but to save it. So it's the sending idea. But again, who's the sending? The one who rejects me does not receive my words, uh, and does not receive my words, has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So it's the Father here that is sending the Son into the world, right? His incarnation for our salvation. It's the Son's mission. Uh, and we kind of know um, the commandments of the Father, right? Because the Son is making them known to us. And we ultimately know that there's a Father because the Son is from the Father. That's what the name Son refers us to, is the Father. The Son is sent from the Father. 
Uh, just another text, 1 John 4, 13. Flip over there. John again writes, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. Already getting ahead a bit, there's a giving of the spirit. But then John says in verse 14, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So what is the mission, what we're just the little bit we're focusing on right now, is who sends the Son? The Father sends the Son. The Spirit doesn't send the Son. The Father sends the Son. Let's go to Galatians 4. I know this was on your sheet, um, but it'll be a good kind of transition for us in moving to the Spirit. Um, Galatians 4. We'll start in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So note, just kind of in in passing real quick here, um, we don't, uh, just can't go into this fully right now, but one of the ways that the, the mission of the son is distinct from the mission of the spirit, and we'll get into this in a sec, is that the son is sent from the father, and the Spirit is sent from the Father and the Son. And we, Paul gestures towards this here by saying, God, whom I take to refer as Father in this text, but we have to leave that for now, sends the Spirit, but it's the Spirit of the Son. So how do we know that the Son and the Spirit are distinct persons? Well, we'll get to that in a sec too. Is, uh, well, the Son is the person from the Father, and the Spirit is the person from the Father and the Son. If the Spirit was just from the Father, which there's a lot of controversy over this, the church split over this, but one of the, uh, <clears throat> one of the claims, uh, one of them, and it's perhaps not totally fair, is just if the Spirit was just from the Father, how is he different than the Son? Because the Son's from the Father too. But So it's... I'm just saying that in passing now because it's, it's just not as simple as, as that, just to be fair. Uh, but for our purposes and our tradition, we distinguish the persons that the Son is from the Father, the Spirit is from the Father and the Son. Um, <clears throat> which is why, if we tie kind of some of this together then, uh, when we talk about the Son being the one from the Father who's born under the law, the incarnation, right, takes on humanity, whereas the Spirit's from the Father and the Son. He's in the world, but he doesn't assume humanity under the law, like we're talking about here. The form of God, form of man rule does not apply to the Spirit. Which is why you don't see the Spirit uh, being talked about is less than the Father, or less than the Son. Or if we were going to get to it, but we're not, which is, why, which is why the Son can be empowered by the Spirit for miracles, because the Son, in the form of man, is less than the Father, though he's from the Father, but he's also less than the Spirit in that regard. He needs the Spirit to empower his mission. Yes, he does have it. <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. Yes, yes. Okay, we have three minutes. <laughs> uh, and let's go. What was that? Yeah. Pray for a whole three minutes. Yeah. Yeah. We could do that. Um, 
Well, I, uh, okay. <clears throat> I can, like, give the texts that talk about the Spirit, because there's, I have a bunch of texts we're going to go through on the Spirit, showing basically the Spirit being sent from the Father and the Son. Um, so that was kind of the next thing. So we see the mission of the Son, we see the mission of the Spirit. And then just a quick qualification, and then I'm just going to move on and summarize this section, basically, <clears throat> is that we often think in mission, when we send somebody, right, there's subordination. It's not the case in divine sending. Because m divine missions do not entail subordination. They tell us about distinction of the persons. And one of the ways we know that is because throughout the Gospel of John, and I hope you see this if you kind of take up that challenge I gave you about going through the Gospel of John with these rules, is that the Father, Son, and the Spirit share the same glory. So if they, there's no subordination when they share the same glory because the entire mission of the Son and the Spirit is to reveal the glory of the triune God, the glory that they all possess before the foundation of the world. That's kind of the logic that underlies that. Just because the Son is sent, just because the Spirit is sent, does not mean that they are less than the Father. It means that they're undertaking triune action and inviting us to know God. <clears throat> um, yeah, we, I'll just, super short, summarize this. Processions, then, what we get to, Processions refer us to the inner life of God. So missions are telling us about who the persons are coming in time. Processions tell us about what the activity of God is uh, kind of over and beyond creation. And it's, it's kind of hard to put words to, but essentially processions are the eternal going forth in God. So the Son, when we talk about his being eternally generated from the Father, he's eternally born of the Father, the Spirit being eternally breathed forth from the Father and the Son, we're talking about a divine procession, something that happens just in God. But notice how then there's this relationship between the processions and the missions. We ultimately know what the processions are because of what we see in the missions. And I, was, I have some texts where Jesus talks about before the foundation of the world being from the Father and the Spirit being from the Father and Son. So what God is doing in eternity past is revealing, he's revealing that to us in his action now. That's why we don't see the Father being sent because the Father proceeds from no one. The Son proceeds from the Father, and the Spirit from the Father and the Son. And that's why then, when God works, He works, you know, uh, <laughs> God the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, who perfects divine action. So the divine missions, then, are the way in which we learn about the divine processions. And why that's important is because uh, that is what keeps us from heresy there, really, what Arians do, right, the people who think the sun is less than, they, they mess up the distinction between the missions and processions. They think a procession is a mission where there's this created effect. And on the other hand, the modalists we talked about, they, they think that processions are dependent upon missions or they just collapse, they just take out the category of procession altogether. But we have to maintain processions precisely because if God is unchanging and God is who he is, he is Father, Son, and Spirit eternally existing in these relations and how he acts towards us reveals who he is. I will stop there because we are over time and we have done some really, really... Uh, dense stuff and you guys have been really great really engaged um so yeah great let's uh let's pray and then uh eric will be back with you guys next week and father we do thank you for this day uh, a day in which we can um come and 
Just practice now what we'll be doing for eternity, uh, contemplating you as Father, Son, and Spirit, living unto you as uh, you have made us in your image and you desire for us to reflect you in everything we do, Lord. So I pray that we would go from this place uh, encouraged and empowered by your Spirit, Lord, so that we might be made more like your Son and in turn live uh, unto the glory of the Father, unto the glory of you as Father, Son, and Spirit. Lord, we do thank you for this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.